Well, enough of that, I guess. Let's go to uh, Nehemiah uh, chapter 2 tonight. Nehemiah chapter 2. So we're going back, Ezra, Nehemiah uh, chapter 2. And we are recording these and putting them up on the web. So uh, those who maybe can't come in on a Wednesday night can can, uh, listen. And if you miss one, you can catch up. And uh, they'll be on the regular sermons. Uh, Nehemiah uh, chapter 2. And I want to give you a quote to get started tonight. And I want you to think about it. And here it is. It's from Augustine. Augustine said, Pray as though everything depended on God and work as though everything depended on you. Let me say that again. I want you to think about it. Pray as though everything depended on God and work as though everything depended on you. Now, that is a delicate balance that we struggle with in the Christian life and in Christian service. Sometimes people go to the extreme of God's sovereignty. Now, God is sovereign. We don't doubt that. We praise God for that. But they take the position that since God is sovereign, He's the sovereign rule of the universe, we don't have to exert any human effort whatsoever. In other words, if people are going to hear the gospel and be saved... We don't have to tell them. Uh, If the church is going to grow and new people are going to come in, we don't have to go and invite them. Uh, I don't have to invite them at all. In in other words, it's all God and His sovereignty and no effort whatsoever on our part. God's sovereignty. That's one extreme. Now, sometimes people go to the exact opposite extreme, and that is they go to the extreme side of human effort. In other words, they almost forget about God completely and they try to do the work in their own strength, their own power, their own wisdom. And they work so hard in in serving God that in reality they almost forget about God. Uh, They make up their minds that they're going to grow the church. And so they go out and they work their fingers to the bones doing that. They make up their minds, we're going to make disciples and we're going to see people saved. But they forget about God's sovereignty. They forget about the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. They forget that, that we're working with God in accomplishing His will in our lives and in our world. Now, realize here, I'm speaking of service, not salvation. We can't help save ourselves. We don't work for salvation. We're saved by grace through faith alone. But in regards to Christian service and serving Him, there's a delicate balance of God's sovereignty and human effort that we must keep balance. And Nehemiah, here in tonight's passage, does a wonderful job of showing us that balance of God's sovereignty and human uh, responsibility and effort when it comes to serving God. I've entitled this evening's message, um, Prayer and Planning. Prayer and Planning. Now, if you missed the last study we did in uh, chapter 1, just to bring you up to speed, Nehemiah has just learned some awful news concerning Jerusalem. Let's go back and read in beginning at verse uh, 1 of chapter 1. And we'll kind of get ourselves caught up about what's going on here in the book of Nehemiah. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left to the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now verse 3 says, They said unto me, The remnant that are left to the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, verse 4, when I heard these words that I sat down and wept 
and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then we go forward through the rest of chapter 1 talking about Nehemiah's prayer. He's praying to the Lord. And at the very end of chapter 1, verse 11, we find this sentence. For I was the king's cupbearer. We talked somewhat about what that meant, what the responsibilities were, uh, that he was the one that tasted of the wine and the food, and he really protected the king's life because he was the one that sampled. If something happened to him, you don't give it to the king. Now, that also tells us then that Nehemiah is kind of restricted. He's not able to take off and travel at will. Uh, He's not his own boss. He's not self-employed. He he holds a very important position in the king, in the king's uh, palace and in the kingdom itself. And he will not be able to go to Jerusalem unless the king says that he can go to Jerusalem. And so we know he's restricted and he's bound. So let's talk first of all tonight as we move into chapter 2 about gaining permission. Uh, Nehemiah's gaining permission. Let's begin reading there. Now he's under the superior He's under his boss, King Artaxerxes. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes, the same year, different month, the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before sad in his presence. So right off the bat here, we see that there's a little bit of a change here of what's gone on before. Uh, Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad, when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant had found favor in thy sight, thou wouldest send me into Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. Now let's just stop there. We'll come back and read uh, some more later. But notice what it says here. This is the month of Nisan in the 20th year. Now we talked about Chislu, the month Chislu in chapter 1, verse 1. Four months have passed by from the time that Nehemiah heard about what was going on in Jerusalem, just how bad things were. And for four months he's been burdened, he's been praying, uh, he's no doubt been fasting on and off. Verse 4 of, ch- of chapter 1 talks about that he sat down and wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. On and off he's fasting, he's praying, he's planning. Now the question is, why did it take four months Why did it take four months from the time that Nehemiah heard about the conditions in Jerusalem to where he actually could say something to King Artaxerxes about it? We don't know for certain why. We could speculate all night long. We know the day finally arrived. And Nehemiah is at his job. He's doing his job. He's at his post, doing his duty. But something's different. It says the end of uh, chapter 2, verse 1, I had not been before time sad in his presence. And his face showed that he was sad. And the king noticed it, verse 2. The king asked him a question. Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Now, you might look at that and say, isn't that wonderful? I mean, the king just looks at him and he says, sir, now what are you not feeling well today? But wait a minute. Notice what Nehemiah says about that. He didn't say, I'm so glad about this. Nehemiah said, I was very sore afraid. Why would he be afraid of that? Well, we understand 
that you are not to do this. You are not to be sad in the presence of the king. In fact, you can jot this reference down. Esther 4.2 says this, And came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. You didn't come into the king's presence all down on the mouth and depressed. You were not to do that. In fact, doing that was a big no-no. It could incur the king's wrath, and it could incur even the cost of your life. The king could literally put you to death. I mean, the power they wield is unbelievable. And so you're there in your sadness presence, and he notices it. And Nehemiah says, I was sore afraid. I was scared to death. That's one reason he's probably scared, but there's another reason. He's scared, I believe, because of what he's about to ask King Artaxerxes. You see, he was about to make a big request from King Artaxerxes. So put yourself there in, in Nehemiah's sandals. And we've got to get a little more history to really understand what he's about to do. You see, if you go back to the book of Ezra, and you'll be turning there, Ezra chapter 4, we're going to learn that Nehemiah was about to ask King Artaxerxes, really, to change his mind. He had already made up his mind about the city and what was going on there. And we find that in Ezra chapter 4. You see, some of the enemies had written a letter to the king. The enemies of the children of Israel wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes. And if you go back to Ezra chapter 4, you're just turning back one book. And go ahead and find verse 11. It says, this is the copy, Ezra 4.11, this is the copy of the letter they sent unto him, even unto Artaxerxes the king. Thy servants, the men on this side of the river, and at such time, be it known to the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are coming to Jerusalem, building the rebellious and the bad city, and have set up the walls thereof and joined the foundations. Be it known unto the king that if this city be builded and the walls set up again, then they will not pay toll, tribute, and custom, and so thou shalt damage the revenue of the kings. Now, because we have maintenance from the king's palace, and it was not meet for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore have we sent and certified the king, that search may be made in this book of the records of thy fathers. So shalt thou find in the book of the records, and know that this city is a rebellious city, and hurtful unto kings and provinces, and that they have moved sedition within the same of old time, for which cause was the city destroyed. Verse 16. We certify the king that if this city be built again, and the walls thereof set up by this means, thou shalt have no portion on this side of the river. Verse 17 says, Then set the king an answer, and to Rehum the chancellor, and to Shemshai the scribe, and to the rest of their companions that dwell in Samaria, and unto the rest that beyond the river, peace, and at such a time, the letter which you sent unto us hath plainly read before me. Look at verse 19. And I commanded, and search hath been made, and it is found that this city of old time hath made insurrection against kings, rebellion and sedition has been made therein. There have been mighty kings also over Jerusalem, which have ruled over all the countries beyond the river, and toll and tribute and custom was paid unto them. Give ye now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that the city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me, till another commandment be given from me. 22, take heed now that ye fail not to do this. Why should damage grow to the herd of the kings? Now watch what happens. Verse 23. And now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shemshai the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. 
Then ceased the work of the house of God, which at Jerusalem. So it ceased in the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So realize what Daniel's about to say. He's about to say, really, would you change your mind? Would you give another command? Would you change what you've said before and send me to take care of the city of Jerusalem? Can you understand why he's a little bit timid, a little bit scared, as he's standing there in front of King Artaxerxes? Now what happens here? Verse 3, we're back in Nehemiah 2. Verse 3. Here's what Nehemiah says. Let the king live forever. First of all, he assures him of his loyalty. Now that was a common thing you said anyway, but Nehemiah no doubt wanted the welfare of the king and meant what he was saying. But notice what he does here. He wisely appeals to the sympathy of the king. Notice what he says in verse 3. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste, And the gates thereof are consumed with fire. King Artaxerxes posed a question to him. And Nehemiah very wisely says, well, why shouldn't I be sad? Just think about the the city of my father's sepulchers. Think about the graves of my ancestors. And we understand that the Persian rulers took very seriously the graves of their people. And they thought very much about that. And it would have appealed to King Artaxerxes' sympathy and compassion. Now notice that Nehemiah, listen, notice Nehemiah did not haul off and let King Artaxerxes have it. He just said, you big dummy, you're the reason I'm sad. You made this, this edict way back and you stopped the building of the city. It's your fault. You stopped the work. You see, if Nehemiah had responded like that, that would have ended any kind of request. And it probably would have ended Nehemiah's life. Because King Artaxerxes would have said, off with his head, take him away. Notice that Nehemiah, he exercised tact, T-A-C-T. He exercised diplomacy. Now, good leaders need to learn those lessons. The lesson of tact and also diplomacy. There's a way to say things. There's a way to word things. There's a way to put forth requests. There's a way that you can do that that will not bring wrath upon you, but instead you might even find gracious uh, 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 cooperation. King Artaxerxes hears this from Nehemiah. And in fact, he realizes as he's talking with Nehemiah that there's more on Nehemiah's mind. Look at what it says in verse 4. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? Talk about a golden opportunity. Here's King Artaxerxes, this powerful ruler, and he basically says to Nehemiah, what is it that you want? What is it that you desire? What are you asking for? Now, don't read verse 4 so fast for you missed the last sentence. Nehemiah writing here says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. Cyril Barber calls this a prayer gram. You ever sent a a prayer gram? You know what a prayer gram is. It's one of those short silent, mental prayers that you pray. I assure you, Nehemiah did not at this point fall down his knees. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for King Artaxerxes. He didn't do that. But in that very moment, before he opened his mouth, before he answered King Artaxerxes, he sent a prayer gram to heaven. He sent a prayer to heaven. You've done that. I've done that. You're in a situation, you're in in an area, you're in a problem, you're in a situation where you're talking to somebody, and you just pray a very silent prayer. Lord, help me. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me grace. Lord, protect me. You might be in a dangerous situation. You see, Nehemiah, it's important to know this, 
he had done a lot of praying up to this point. He didn't wait till just the very end and say, Oh Lord, help me. Four months have gone by. He's been praying. He's been fasting, no doubt, on and off. He's been bombarding heaven with his prayers. And here at the very end, right before he's ready to talk to King Artaxerxes about the request, he sends that one last prayer gram. And then he goes on. Now, look at what he asked for. We'll begin reading at verse 5. Let me just say, he didn't, he didn't ask for anything small. Look what he asked for, verse 5. I said unto the king, if it please the king. Now remember who's in authority here. King Artaxerxes. He's the superior. Nehemiah is very respectful. If it please the king. And if thy servant, notice what he calls himself, have found favor in thy sight. Now that tells us something about Nehemiah, doesn't it? If he was a slacker, if he was a no good person, he couldn't say this, could he? And if I found favor in your sight, grant this request, because there wouldn't be any request to grant, right? He says, If I found favor in thy sight, thou wouldest send notice, thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. Here's what he's saying King, would you send me to rebuild the city of my father's sepulchres? That's quite a request. Now notice what else he asked for. Look, drop down to verse 7. Moreover, I said unto the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river. They may convey me over till I come into Judah. This would be kind of like a passport, if you will, so he could have safe travel through the areas he had to go through. And he didn't stop there. It gets even better. Look at verse number 8. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertained to the house, and for the wall of the city, and watch this, and for the house that I shall enter into, and the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Furthermore, if you back up to verse 6, the king asked him a question. Look at verse 6. The king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him, I set him a time. Now listen, I want to submit to you right here that Nehemiah not only spent time in prayer, he also spent time planning. He spent time planning. If he did not, how would he have been able to articulate all these requests so well? In other words, let's say that he didn't do any planning, and he got before King Artaxerxes, and he says, what do you want? And he says, I want to go, and I want permission to go back to to the city of my father's sepulchers. And the king says, okay, that sounds fine, I'll be gone. All right, you may go. And he sets out. Well, there's a problem, isn't there? When he gets to the first little place there, where's your passport? Where's your letter? (gasps) There, there ends the journey, I guess. Or let's say he remembers to get that, but then he gets to actual Jerusalem. And he's ready to get to work. But there's one small problem. He didn't have a line of credit over at Lowe's or Home Depot. He can't get the materials. He didn't have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. You see, no doubt during those four months that Nehemiah was praying and bombarding heaven and fasting on and off, he was planning. He was thinking through what had to take place. What do I need? What am I going to do? When He had a goal in mind. His goal, remember, was to rebuild the wall. And he had a plan about how he was going to do that. Now, we'll see in a few minutes he will tweak that plan when he actually sees with his eyes exactly what needs to take place. But the initial plan was there. I need permission to go back and rebuild. 
I need letters to get across the different places I'm going. And I need a letter to the, to the king's forest keeper, Asaph, to give me the materials that I needed. Nehemiah was a man with a plan. Now, what does the Bible say about planning? Now, we've talked about the very first study. All of us are a leader in some way, shape, or form. It may be vocationally. It may be in the home. It may be in a class. It may be in a club. It may be as a grandparent or whatever your case may be. We're leaders in some way, shape, or form. What does the Bible say about planning? Well, it's interesting to see what Jesus said in one of his parables. Look at Luke 14. Turn over there real quick. Luke 14. Let's think about planning for a little bit. Luke 14. We have the parable of the tower. We'll begin reading there at uh, verse 25, talking about discipleship. Uh, Luke 14:25. The Bible says there in Luke 14:25, and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now we've studied that in the past. We said that's a comparative statement. It doesn't mean you have to hate and despise and just can't stand it and just, I just hate my, my family. No, it means my love for Christ is so much, it appears as if I hate my family. In other words, my love for Christ is supreme. Verse 27. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Look at verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower? Anybody going to build a tower anytime soon? Okay, well, anyway, uh, which of you intend to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether you have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he have laid the foundation and is not able to finish it all, uh, that behold, it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Look at the next verse. Or what king going to war, or to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and counteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000, or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desire conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. You know, Jesus used some very common sense things there, even in planning for building and planning and battling to show the importance of sitting down and counting the cost. Now go to James chapter 4. This really talks about where we are today and in planning that we might do in our lives. James chapter 4. And in James chapter 4, we see proper planning and we see sinful planning. James chapter 4. Maybe you're planning a business trip. Well, listen to what James says here. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. James 4:13. Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Now, don't close it up, but listen, here's the plan. Either today or tomorrow, Daryl, we're going to go into the city and we're going to go there and we're going to remain there a year and we're going to buy. We're going to sell. We're going to get gain. That's your plan. Notice what he says about that plan, verse 14. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. But notice what the next verse says. For that ye ought to say, here's the correction, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. You see, there's God-honoring planning and there's presumptuous sinful planning. Now, what's the difference? 
Well, God-honoring planning, it begins with God. His desires, His Word, His will. As, as, as White said, prayer is where planning starts. You see, there's nothing necessarily wrong with Daryl and I going into the city and, and living there a year and, and transacting business and, and hopefully buying and selling and getting a profit. Something inherently wrong with that unless we forget God. Then he says, what? You ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this. Why? We may not make it to that city. Our plane may go down. Our car may crash. Our bodies may give up. We're going to stay a year. We may not be there a year. All sorts of things are going to happen. If the Lord will. I try to make it a habit to use that saying, Lord willing, God willing. Does that verse say we have to do that? No. I don't think that's what it's saying. I'm saying you have to say that. But it's a good reminder to realize that every plan that we make, we have to hold that plan very loosely. Why? Because what is your life? It's a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You can go out maybe on a cold day like today at certain times, and you just kind of, and you can kind of see the, your breath for a moment. Now, if it's a hot day and you see your breath, go back and brush your teeth. But on a cold day, uh, you kind of see your breath for a moment, and it vanishes away. It's gone. That's a picture of our lives. Think about that. That's a picture of our lives. You say, well, what if I live to be 100? Beloved, what is that compared to eternity? That's not even a speck. That's not even a half a speck. That's not even a quarter speck. How small can we go here? See, proper planning begins with God. God, what is your desire? God, what is your will? God, what does your word say? What is your will for my life? And I go out planning and and preparing God willing. You see, selfish, presumptuous planning is man-centered. What are we going to do? What are we going to gain? What do we want? I like the way Jack Graham put it. He was talking about effective leader planning wisely. Here's what he said. Too often we have an idea. We have a dream. And we just go at it arms flailing rather than taking time to plan. But there's a beautiful balance here. There's the divine side of praying, and there's the human side of planning. There is agonizing, and there is organizing. You see that? There's the agonizing, and then there's the organizing. See, planning and preparing are so important. We're praying and planning. You know, this means a lot to me because the majority of my life as a pastor, I spend doing those things, planning and preparing. That's the majority of my life. Praying, planning, and preparing. Why? Well, it takes far more hours to prepare a Bible study or a sermon. It takes hours upon hours upon hours. And I get to deliver it maybe in 30 minutes. If I really make out well, I'm going to get maybe 35 minutes. Uh, but you know what? Behind that is all this planning and preparing. The majority of your life may be that way. You know, when I hear a fellow get up and he's going to preach and he says something along these lines, I don't prepare before I speak. I just trust God to fill my mouth. I lose a lot of respect for a man like that. I do. He needs to go read uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved in the God of workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Because those messages where you just open your mouth and you just say whatever's in your head, they just drag on and you don't say a whole lot of anything. How dare we seek to serve God and not prepare and plan? 
I think about David. What did he say back in the Testament? How can I give something to God that doth cost me nothing? Listen, some of you are going to teach Sunday school. Don't wait till Sunday morning and crack open. What are we going to study this morning? Whoa. I'm feeling kind of sick. I'm going to call a preacher. Can you fill in for me today? No. We have to plan. We have to prepare. A lot of you folks in education, you didn't walk in the classroom the first day of school and say, what am I teaching this year? Now, some of you did it for so long, you you knew a lot of material, but you still prepared. You still planned. Get it lined out. How dare we treat the work of God any less? You know, we think about our friend day that's coming up. We put a lot of prayer and planning and preparation into that thing. We can just say, everybody just invite your friends on this day and come. But we want to be ready. We want to be waiting for them with the gospel and ready to welcome and receive them. If you're in a committee, if you're working on a project, you need to plan and pray and prepare. Wherever you're a leader, pray and plan. But make sure that God is at the heart of your planning. If the Lord will, we shall do this and that. If the Lord will, we're going to accomplish this. Hold those plans loosely, but still plan. That's what Augustine meant. Pray as though everything depended upon God, and work as though everything depended upon you. Wherever you're a leader, pray and plan. Now, Nehemiah, you tell him passionate about that? Nehemiah was gaining permission from the earthly king, but in reality, he was blessed by God. Look at what he says in the end of verse 8. And the king granted me, how? According to the good hand of my God upon me. Proverbs 21.1 says this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, and he turneth it whithersoever he will. You see, Nehemiah was the man that he was because of who his God was. He was able to do what he was able to do because of his God. And by the way, his God is our God. Hallelujah. The same God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That makes you want to go rebuild a wall, doesn't it? Makes you want to get busy for the Lord. Gaining permission, we've got to hurry. Gaining perspective, next, verse 9. We move with Nehemiah from uh, the palace to Jerusalem. And we begin there at verse number 9. Then I came to the governors beyond the river. And gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and, and horsemen with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there would come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Now let's stop there for a moment. This journey, at the very quickest, would have taken Nehemiah uh, probably at least two months to make. He's going along with a, an escort of soldiers. And uh, it seems, according to verse 11, that the first three days he got there, uh, he didn't do a whole lot. Now, we look at that and say, I wonder why he didn't. Why did he jump right into work? Because you think about it, he had four months from the time he heard about the condition to the time he had to get permission. He had at least another two months to get there if he left right away. So at the very least, from that six months from the time he heard about the condition to the time he got on the ground, why wait three more days doing nothing? Well, that's where we're wrong. We're wrong about that, about doing nothing. Why? Well, many scholars believe the three days were spent in resting. Now, isn't that nothing? No. Resting is very important. He no doubt spent part of that rest praying and and thanking God and and maybe thinking through what was going on. But he, he learned and knew something that we need to learn. We're human. Everybody kind of knew that coming in tonight, but we forget that, don't we? We're not superhuman. We're human. 
We, we have limited capabilities. We have limited resources as far as energy is concerned. And we have to take some time to rest and rejuvenate. Nehemiah knew what we need to learn. He's a human. We cannot go on and on and on with that without adequate rest. So three days pass by. We assume he's resting, praying, thanking God. But then we notice verse 12. Look at what it says. And I arose in the night. I and some few men with me. Neither told I any man of what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. And it says, Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, and there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned and the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. What happened here? You know, those three days go by and he gets up in the night. And we have what we might call Nehemiah's midnight ride. And probably by the, the light of the moon he goes out. And he doesn't make a big declaration. He doesn't make a big publication. He goes out to gain some perspective. He's heard about the wall. He's heard about it being broken down. He gets some perspective by seeing it with his own eyes. And here's where he begins to tweak his plan. He's seeing what needs to be done. He sees what it will take to get it done, to get this wall rebuilt. Now, why the secrecy? Why did he get up in the night and do this? Other people are sleeping and snoozing, and he's out there looking at the wall and figuring out what's going on. Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, the enemies. We'll talk about the enemies in a few minutes. The enemies. He didn't want the enemies to know what he was doing. Secondly, his friends. He was not ready to reveal the plan to them. He was not ready to tell them what we're going to do. And I think, thirdly, the timing was not yet right. It's coming close, but it's not right yet. He had to gain some perspective, but then notice, thirdly, gaining personnel. Look at verse 17. Then said I unto them, the time has come. You see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem life wastes, the gates that were burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem. There will be no more reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, the, the, them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. The time had come for him to gather personnel, to gather workers. Notice what he says for them. Notice verse 17. First of all, he lays out the need before him. He's very plain. Verse 17. You see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem life wastes, the gates that are burned with fire. You know what? A leader's going to stand and he's going to say, here's what's going on, people. Here's where we are. Here's the condition. But notice he also included himself in what he said. Notice these words. The words we, us, and we. Look at it again. You see the distress that we are in. Drop on down. Let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. He's a true leader. He realizes they're working together. He says, hey, let us arise and build. He calls for commitment on their part. He says, let us arise and build. Let us go after the work. He reminds them about a testimony they need to uphold. He says, let's don't be a reproach anymore. Let's don't be a reproach. And then drop down to verse 18. He reminds them of God. He points them to God. The good hand of God is upon him. In other words, this is God's work. God's with us. God sent me. God is in this thing. And he also reminds him that the earthly king, 
had authorized this work. And you know what happens in the verse 18? They are ready. Praise be to God. Look at it. They said, let us arise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. They were ready to get after it. But here's what's interesting. Whenever God's people, they set up and say, let us arise and build. The enemy is waiting and he says, his cohorts say, let us arise and discourage. Let us arise and hinder. Let us arise and ridicule. Let us arise and scorn. The enemies are there. Notice back at verse 10. We're introduced to Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite. It says, when they heard about Nehemiah, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the wealth of the children of Israel. Drop down to verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and a third one, Geshem the Arabian, heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? One author called these guys the Three Stooges. The Three Stooges. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They were quick to laugh. They were quick to ridicule and to scorn and to make fun of. And I want to show you something tonight. Our day, where we live right now, these guys are still around. They're still the Sanballats. They're still the Tobias. They're still the Geshems. They're still there. They want to hinder the work of God. They want to discourage you in your walk with God. They want to ruin your testimony. They want you to quit, to give up, to give in, to go home. They don't want you honoring the Lord in your service. They're still around. They're still around. We can say, let us arise and build. They say, let us arise and discourage. Let us rise and tear down. How does Nehemiah handle these guys? Now notice, these are not people just offering constructive criticism. They're not part of the team saying, wait, no, let's do it this way. They were all out and out enemies of God and Nehemiah and the people. What did Nehemiah do? He said, you know, guys, let's get a cup of coffee and sit down and talk this thing through. Can't we all just get along? Listen, they were going to destroy their work. Look what he says in verse 20. Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven... He will prosper us. Therefore, we, His servants, will arise and build, but ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. He cut it plain. He cut it straight. He said, look, we're doing God's work. We're doing God's will. God's going to prosper us, and you have no part with us. He drew a line in the sand. You see, He knew that these people were not there to help. And encourage. They were there to destroy and to hinder. Now, when God clearly gives you instructions, when God gives you a clear goal, we cannot let the naysayers and the enemies hinder us from doing our work. We cannot grow weary. We cannot grow discouraged. We must not give up. We should expect opposition. One pastor said this. He said, if you haven't met the devil head on lately, maybe it's because you're moving in the same direction. Ouch! Think about that. What about this? John 16, 32 and 33. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. What do we do with these people? We keep our eyes on Jesus. 
We keep on going for the Lord. Don't listen to the enemy. Don't listen to the naysayers. When God gives you a God-given goal and directive, keep going. We've got a story and we're done. This story involving Yogi Berra, the famous catcher for the New York Yankees, and Hank Aaron, who at the time was playing for the Milwaukee uh, Braves, uh, one of the best hitters in all of baseball history. The teams were playing in the World Series. And as usual, Yogi, who was known for many sayings, you see his quotes around, they're wonderful <laughs> uh, things that he said. But he, he was keeping up the ceaseless chatter, and it was to keep his, his teammates pepped up, and it was also distracting, trying to distract the Milwaukee batters on the other. Well, Aaron, Hank Aaron, comes up to the plate. And Yogi tried to distract him by yelling out this, Henry, you're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so you can read the trademark. And he's hollering that out at Hank Henry, at Hank Aaron. And Aaron didn't say anything. But when the next pitch came, he hit it into the left field bleachers. He knocked it out of the park. <laughs> and as he's rounding the bases, and he's tacking up at home plate, Hank Aaron looked at Yogi Bear and said, I didn't come up here to read. Didn't come up here to read. I came up here the goal to hit that ball, to hit it far, to hit it out, to hit a home run. What do we say tonight? Keep your focus. Keep your focus on the Lord. Keep your focus on what God's called you to do. Now, let me ask you tonight. What walls need rebuilding in your life? Are you going to pray? Are you going to plan? Are you going to sit around and sour? Are you ready when the opportunity arrives? When, when the king is there, what do you need? When it presents itself, will you be prepared? In other words, are you praying and are you planning? Nehemiah is a great, great example of leadership and godliness. Let's follow his example. Pray and plan. Pray and plan. Keep God at the center. God at the focus. Don't listen to the enemies. Keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for allowing us a small part of the work that you're doing in our world. Dismiss us now in thy care and thy love. Watch over us. Thank you for these many people and their graciousness and coming and listening and studying along tonight. Bless the choir as they practice, as they prepare for Sunday, as they prepare to sing your praise. Bless each family as we go home tonight. Keep us safe. Watch over us and glorify yourself in and through us. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen and amen.